Well, if you're visiting with us this morning or you're, you're a new attender here at Oak Hill, we have been working our way through the Gospel of John for quite a while now, and we have come to one of the most glorious chapters in the entire book, chapter 17, what's known as the High Priestly Prayer of the Lord. And this is the third of four messages that we'll have in this chapter. And last Sunday, we just barely dipped our toes into a very important subject, a very practical subject, and that is, what is the Christian's relationship to the world? What is the Christian's relationship to the world? As disciples of Jesus Christ, how are we supposed to view this life that we live in a fallen world? What things can we enjoy? What things do we need to reject? How do we strike a balance between making a home here on earth and at the same time focusing our attention on our truest home, which is in heaven? And practically day to day, as we process through all that, how do we make good choices and good decisions in how we live? Now, in last Sunday's passage, Jesus brought up the issue of this this thing that he calls the world, and he brought it up in three ways. First of all, he identified the 11 disciples who were with him on this night as men whom the Father had given to him out of the world. They were in the world, and the Father gave them to him out of the world. Second, he declared that he himself was no longer in the world, meaning his departure from this earthly life was at hand. And we know just within hours, he's going to be both arrested and tried. And third, he stated the obvious. Even though he was going away, he said, my disciples have to stay here, remain in the world, and they're going to be hated. And so we see three statements, once out of the world and twice in the world. And now today, in the the passage you're studying today, Jesus is going to add to that, give us even more details. In fact, four new details about the world. Number one, he's going to say the disciples are not of the world meaning they don't belong to the world. Number two, that God is not going to take them out of the world, meaning they have to stay. Number three, not only do they have to stay, but the Lord has sent them into this world with a particular mission in mind. And number four, again, something we've heard multiple times, this world that they have to go into is going to hate them. So four new things. Now, our task this morning is to sort through all of this material and to understand how and why Jesus is praying for his disciples in this way, and then to take all of that and practically apply it to us so that our worldview is correct as we go out there into this place just outside this building that we call the world. Now, when it comes to our relationship with the world, you and I are walking a tightrope. We might as well just say that from the jump. We are walking a very thin line, and it's easy to get out of balance on this issue of how we operate in the world. Here's what I mean by that. I could go through the New Testament and cite a whole bunch of passages that tell you that the world is utterly dark and utterly lost and should be rejected completely. Let me give you some examples. I'll put just some some statements on the screen. 1 John 2, do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world. James 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 2 Corinthians 6, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has light with darkness? We are the temple of the living God. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived, bad company 
corrupts good morals. 1 John 5, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That seems pretty bleak, doesn't it? Don't love the world. Don't be conformed to it. Don't be a friend of it. In fact, separate yourself from it or what? You become hostile towards God. You become his enemy. Should we just pray and go home? No, there's a whole other side. On the other side of the tie rope, I can also give you a number of New Testament passages that say, no, you should be deeply involved in the world. Let me give you a list. 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal to the world through us. Matthew 20, 22, or Matthew 22, I mean the most basic of all, you've got to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Luke 10, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs to every city and every place where he himself was going to come. Mark 16, Jesus said to them, go into all the world, go into the world, he said, and preach the gospel to all creation. 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to make a defense to everyone out there in the world who asks you to give an account for the hope that you have. 1 Corinthians 9, I've become all things to all men so that I might save some. So which is it? As we look at those two lists, which is it? Are we to reject the world and avoid it entirely, or should we intentionally go into the world and mix with lost people? And we know the answer to this. It's both, isn't it? <laughs> See, it wasn't a trick question. When the Bible says this and this, they're both true. So we do both, right? But you have to admit, as we look at those lists, this is a real struggle to find the appropriate balance, right? So think about the generations of Christians who have struggled with this, right? There were been Christians throughout the history of the church who believed that absolute isolation was God's plan. Consider the monastic movement in the church that started in the late third century and then accelerated all throughout Europe right up until the period of the Reformation, right? And in fact, today, you can go around the world, you will still find monks and you will still find monasteries. Imagine believing that it's God's will for his children to retreat behind massive walls, to cut themselves off from the world, right? To cut themselves off from any comforts at all, any pleasure, any convenience, hard to imagine that that's what God really wants. And then, of course, we, see we have even today, we have the Amish and certain brands of Mennonites who proudly say, we are, we are separatists. Leave us alone. We want to live our lifestyle and don't want to be bothered by the world. There's also very conservative separatist branches of Protestant tradition who de deny themselves everything that they group under this category of worldly things. No alcohol, no tobacco, no dancing. Can't go to a theater and see a movie, even playing a simple card game. And for some Christians, these have become part of a sort of extra-biblical canon that, that's very close to being on the level of Scripture. And of course, Jesus dealt with this in his day. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but the, the very word Pharisee, etymologically speaking, comes from an Aramaic word that means to be separate. That was the highest ideal of the Pharisees, that they would avoid all contact with what they deemed as sinners. Separate ourselves from sinners. And so this is why they were so shocked by some of the things that Jesus did. When he was willing to come into contact with people that in that tradition was, they were considered unclean, both physically and spiritually. And so this accusation followed Jesus everywhere he went during his three-year ministry. That teacher, that rabbi, is a friend of sinners. 
He's a friend of sinners. Now that separatist impulse that we see in church history is one side of the tightrope, but there's a whole other one that you know about, and it's the worldly impulse. The worldly impulse. If we're honest, it's the worldly impulse. That's the side of the tightrope that culturally we here at Oak Hill are more likely to fall into. Some Christians, boosted by the idea that Jesus was a friend of sinners, will go out and try to make the case that we should intentionally eliminate all distinctions between us and the people in the world. In fact, they would say that, that it's those distinctions that we make that actually turn people away from a fair hearing of the gospel. But of course, we know what the problem of that is. It's obvious. If there's no distinction between you and the average person in the world, if there's no difference in the way you view things, in your thoughts, in your motivations, no difference in your lifestyle, then the question is, what gospel can you possibly offer to them? If we're unrecognizable as distinct in a sea of people, then how can we be ambassadors for Christ? And the reality is, and I can testify because I've seen this happen, professing Christians that take on this mindset, the idea that we should mimic the world in order to draw people to Christ, guess what? They always end up compromising biblical principles. And many of them end up falling into grave sin. And rather than enhancing their testimony, they actually end up destroying it. So... Here's what we need to do as we approach passages like today's. We need to avoid the, the mistake that so many people in the church make. We see this all the time. People get hyper-energized about a particular principle in the Bible, so they take the pendulum and they swing it from one extreme to the other. I'm going to be fully separatist because that's what the Bible says. Then I'm going to swing the pendulum. No, I'm going to mix with the world in every way possible. And we swing it back and forth rather than saying, we need to be right here in the center. We need to be balanced on this subject. And we need to be okay with the tension that maybe you've already felt this morning, these passages that appear, appear to present contradicting truths. Can we live in that tension to say both are true and we need to live both of them out? I hope so. Grab your Bibles. I know that was a long introduction. Grab your Bibles. John 17. Find verse 13. John 17. Now, the big idea from last Sunday was Jesus' intercession for his disciples. And we talked about how even today, even right now, as we have been praying, Jesus is interceding for us before the throne of grace. He is our great high priest. Remember, we started verses 1 through 5 in this great prayer. Jesus focused on his relationship with his father. And he talked about their shared glory, right? Their, he, he, he references their equality between himself and the Father, how they shared this glory way back in eternity past before the world was even made. Just amazing statements of deity. Then in verses 6 through 12, we, Jesus turned his focus to the disciples. He talked about their readiness for this moment of him leaving. And, and what is it they believe, this primitive faith that they have, that they have come to believe that yes, Jesus came from the Father, he came from Yahweh, and that his teaching is of divine origin. So we saw last week their faith is progressing, but guess what? As Jesus is taken away now, and they're left on their own physically without him, they're going to need divine protection. That's what Jesus started praying for in last week's passage. He's going to continue doing that in today's passage. Verse 13, Jesus says to the Father, but now I come to you. 
And these things I speak in the world, right, while in the flesh, so that they, the disciples, may have joy made full in themselves. Do you know that Jesus wants us to have joy? Not to be downcast all the time, but to, be, to have joy, even in the midst of hardship. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. All right, there's so much in here. I'm going to try to get through it. But let's start by just definitions always help. What does Jesus mean? What does John mean when they use this word world? Look again at verse 14. You see the important phrase. They, the disciples, are not of the world. And then notice Jesus repeats this for emphasis in verse 16. He says the same thing. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now, the Greek word for world, many of you know this, is cosmos. It shows up a lot in John's gospel. 78 times in John's gospel, this word comes up. 18 just in this prayer in chapter 17. Now, like other biblical words, cosmos has a range of meaning. And as we speak here at, at Oak Hill, context is king. The key to interpreting a word that has multiple meanings or a range of meanings is to look at the flow of the argument and to check the context. So let me give you three different ways that world can be used. First of all, sometimes the world is, referred to, is referring to the created order itself, the physical universe that we see all around us, right? The ground, the sky, the mountains, the trees, the rivers, the seas, all of it. It's the physical world. Sometimes that is what cosmos means. Second thing, sometimes the world refers to the human beings that live in the created order, the collective mass of humanity on the earth. And in both of those senses, we can and should love the world. We can and should enjoy the world because we should marvel at God's glory in creation, right? I hope you did that this morning. How many of you guys were driving down the freeway you saw the snow in the mountains? We should marvel at God's creation and praise him for it. By the way, don't just look at it and go, that's beautiful. No, praise the creator. Praise what he has designed and what he has, has given to us. And then we should show respect and love to our fellow man. Because each person is uniquely made in the image of God. And we should be grateful for the human relationships that God has given us during our time on the earth. Whether that's marriage, children, family, uh, friends, whatever. We should be grateful for this. So we love the world. We enjoy the world in those two senses. But then we come to the pernicious aspect of the world. Oftentimes when Jesus or John speaks of the world, they're referring to the system that is operating all around us that is at odds with God in every conceivable way. It's a system that is run by unredeemed men and women, people whose thoughts and attitudes and values and goals are purely humanistic and motivated by sin. The world system neither seeks to acknowledge or promote God's glory, nor does it submit to his rightful lordship. The whole world ought to submit to Christ's lordship but the world, in this sense, does not. And despite what people think, the world system is operated by a spiritual power. People are sometimes surprised by this. Everything 
in this world has a spiritual power behind it. Satan and his fellow demons have been given temporary power under God's sovereign rule, right? And so the world system is the devil's realm. The Bible tells us that, confirms that. And how does, how does Satan maintain his status and power in this kingdom? Well, he does what he does best. He does what the Bible tells us is his character, and that is to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he does. But he does it in the most subtle ways imaginable, right? Because he disguises himself as what? An angel of light. So he's not the guy with the red suit and the horns. He disguises himself as an angel of light. And he offers things to people like beautiful fruit from a tree that look really pleasing to the senses. He blinds people from seeing and hearing the truth about God. He manipulates the thoughts and feelings of people who are already corrupted in their flesh and already confused. He points lost people to shiny objects of worship. Look over here, look over here, right? Things like money and fame and power and pleasure. These are the tools of his trade. Pursue these things and you'll be satisfied, he says. Pursue these things and you'll be happy. And people fall it, like, like the, the proverbial fish on the line, right? Oh, got the hook in the mouth. And there they go. And they don't realize that he's actually the father of lies. And so obviously, as we speak about this version of the world, this is what we cannot love. This is what we must not love. Having been redeemed by Christ, we are no longer ruled by sin. We are no longer bound to the values and the principles of the system that is operating all around us. In fact, the Bible says we're a kingdom within a kingdom. We belong to this this other kingdom, not to the world system. And because we belong to that kingdom, the lenses on our eyes are completely different from your unsaved neighbor. We see things through a grid that's completely different than the rest of the world. That's by design. So we make a very serious mistake as Christians when we forget these things. When we begin to settle into this world and get too comfortable as if this were our kingdom, because it's not. Now, with that definition laid out, let's now look at what Jesus is praying for related to the world. And he prays for two things in particular for his disciples. First of all, that the Father would keep them. And second, that he would sanctify them. Okay, keep and sanctify. Let's look at the first one in verse 15. I do not ask you to take them, the disciples, out of the world, but to keep them. Now, I know some translations say, but to protect them. And that's a good translation as well. To keep them from evil or from the evil one. There's a bit of a debate on the original Greek text whether it, mean, whether it says keep them from evil or the evil one. But in either case, the intent of the prayer is the same. Jesus fully understands that once he is gone, These baby believers, that's what we would probably call them today, right? These 11 men, these baby believers are going to need lots of divine help. And it's true. He says, look, they were yours, Father, and you gave them to me. And while I was with them, I, I guarded them like a good shepherd, right? Like a good shepherd guards his sheep. But now I'm leaving them and I'm coming back to you. And that means they're stuck down here in this very dangerous place. And we have to acknowledge that spiritually the world is a very dangerous place. So, Father, keep them, he says. Hold them, protect them from the one who will seek to deceive and destroy them. That's what's going on here. 
Uh, Pastor Ray Stedman, somebody that I enjoy reading, describes Jesus' tone here with these beautiful words. He says, he says, these are not soft, beautiful words prayed in a great cathedral. These are earthy, gutty words uttered on a battlefield in which the Lord speaks of life as it really is a war for human souls. How many of us wake up in the morning and that's the way we think about our day? That we're going into this battle. Jesus tells us what reality is. It's a battlefield out there. And so he sums up this prayer in these two little words, keep them. Keep them from the schemes of the enemy. Keep them from becoming too worldly. Keep them from stumbling into sin. Keep them from becoming disqualified as ambassadors for the gospel. Keep them. And listen, we know from Scripture that true saving faith cannot be taken away by the devil. That's very important to say. The devil has no power to take away our salvation. It cannot be lost. But at the same time, we should recognize that the, the devil can do very real damage to a Christian and to the church. If that wasn't true, there'd be no reason for Jesus to pray as he does here. If a believer isn't on alert, and we're told to be on alert, aren't we? Like a watchman on the walls. If we're not paying attention to the battle that Scripture tells us is raging all around us, the enemy can trip us up in all kinds of ways through temptation. He can establish a foothold in our lives and lure us into habitual sin. Again, he can't take away our salvation, but he can, he can sideline us because that's what that does. When we get lured away by temptation into habitual sin, we get sidelined. We lose our enthusiasm for the things of God. It weakens our testimony. It causes us to become discouraged and disillusioned about our faith. And nothing pleases the devil more than to, than to point at a Christian and get them off the battlefield, to put them on the shelf, to make them ineffective. And so he will try to exploit your weaknesses. He will try to exploit your weaknesses, your doubts, your passions, your vanity, your insecurities, your jealousies, whatever works. And then on a larger scale, he's always at work trying to divide the body of Christ, right? If he can get us to grumble against each other, if he can take down a pastor or an elder, then he's done his job. Folks, this is all real damage. And so we cannot be clueless about it. Again, if we're in Christ, we can't be eternally defeated by the devil. And here's the great news that comes out of this passage. Our victory ultimately is secured by the one who intercedes for us, our great high priest. He will hold us and nothing can snatch us from his hand. But we can definitely be sidelined in many ways. So it's critically important as a church that we all pay attention to this and become more alert because the stakes are high. The stakes are very high. This week I read one author who wrote this. This made me laugh. He said, if I told you that a real physical African lion was on, the loose, was on the loose on the streets of your town, you would have your head on a swivel as you walk back to your car this morning. You'd be looking all over the place. If there was a, a real lion, but the Bible tells us that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. And so that's the way we ought to approach the spiritual battle. Keep your head on a swivel. Now, take note of one more thing before we move on. Notice how Jesus doesn't ask the Father to take the disciples out of the world. Because look, that'd be the most efficient way to keep them safe, right? Just take them out of the world. Take them out of the battle. So why not? It can't happen, right? You and I, just like the 11 men that night, as disciples of Christ, 
cannot be taken out of the battle. We need to be in the thick of the fight. We can't back away from this. We can't go into isolation mode. Why? Because when Jesus leaves, guess what? These 11 men become the light of the world. They become the voice of the gospel, right? They become ambassadors for Christ on earth. Father can't take them out of the world. He's got to send them into the world. Very much the opposite. And listen, if we were taken out of the world today, you know what would be left? Nothing but darkness and eternal death. The church is the light. This is what we're supposed to be in our neighborhoods, in our communities. We can't be taken out of the world. So using Jesus' prayer as a model, you and I ought to be praying about these things, praying about readiness, praying about being on alert, praying and always asking the Lord to keep us and to protect us from the schemes of the evil one. Put that on your prayer list. If it's not daily, it should be. So that's the first one. Let's go back to the second one. First to keep us, second to sanctify us. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world... I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself. And sometimes we use the word consecrate here. I consecrate myself. That they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Now, in the original Greek, again, hagiadzo is the verb here. And it too has a range of meaning. Let me give you a few of, the, few of its uses. You see it there on the, on the screen. Hagiadzo can mean to, to cleanse or to purify from sin. To sanctify, Right? It could be to render something holy or sacred. And number three, to set something apart from the ordinary or the profane so that it's dedicated to God. So look at those three things. Now notice how Jesus starts with himself here. He says, I sanctify myself. That may seem strange from the Son of God, right? But he has the cross in mind here, right? I set myself apart as a sacrificial lamb is what he's saying. An offering in service of my Father to complete the mission that he's given me, to go to that cross, to atone for sin. So I set myself apart for that use. And then after announcing his own set-apartness, he then turns to the disciples, right? The men who follow him. And he says that they also may be sanctified. Well, for what? Verse 18, for missional work in the world. Just as my Father sent me into the world with a mission to seek and to save the lost, now my Father wants to set you apart as well. May He purify you as you're sent into the world, knowing that the world's going to hate you, just as it hated me. May He prepare you to suffer as I have suffered. May He prepare you as a sacrifice, even laying down your life for the sake of the gospel. The stakes are high on this. What Jesus is praying for here is really, really big that the disciples would take on the same mission that Jesus himself has taken on, including that cross, to take up a cross and follow. And so Jesus prays for them. Now notice there in verse 19 how Jesus says that they may be sanctified in what? In truth. Now that should not be missed. Sanctified in truth. Back up now to verse 17, and you see the same statement here, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. And what is truth? Your word is truth. Friends, this is a foundational verse that every single Christian ought to know. It's really a short one and easy to memorize. Really easy. John 17, even the number is easy. John 17, 17, right? Sanctify them, Father. In the truth, your word is truth. 
foundational. So what is the primary means by which God sets us apart for his use? The truth of his word. The truth of his word. Not our feelings. Not our thoughts and our unique ideas. Not our vision or our strategies. Not our skills. Not even our giftedness. You and I are primarily sanctified by the objective truth of God's word. Now, as you know, there is a huge battle for the truth waging today, right? And it's getting crazier and crazier. We live in the age, we've all heard it, of disinformation, right? Deception and disinformation. And as we survey what's happening in our world, we recognize there are so many people out there in the system who are completely untethered from reality, from any sense of objective truth. You go to any media or social media site and you will see and hear people who live in a completely fabricated world. Completely. Utterly disconnected from reality. A continual shimmering illusion of their own making. It's hard to watch, isn't it? It really is. And though we're sometimes shocked at the foolishness of it all, we've been told that this would happen. And you can find, there's many ways to look at it, but you can file it simply in Romans 1 under this category. Listen, the prediction is they have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, right? Their unrighteous lives cause them to suppress the truth. I don't want to hear it. Don't show it to me, they say. Their thinking has become worthless, Paul writes. Their senseless hearts have been darkened. They've been darkened. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. And, and, and how many people do you see on social media that are so confident and arrogant in their foolishness? They think they're wise, but they become fools. And God has given them over to a corrupted mind, a corrupted way of thinking. So what's happening in the world, if you, if you stare at your computer or your phone and you get frustrated, stop. Stop. This is the world. We've been told it's going to be like this. The battle over truth is a very ancient one. Remember Pontius Pilate? Of all people, looks at Jesus and in his own language says, quid veritas. What is truth? He said that to God the Son. What is truth? And in this prayer, Jesus tells us. It's, it's God's word. God's word is truth. And it's not, just, it's not just that the Bible contains truth. It's the embodiment of truth. Why? Because it's eternal. It's unchanging. It never fades. It never passes away. And most importantly for us today, God's word is the truth because it doesn't shift according to cultural norms. It doesn't, it doesn't weave its way to shift into some new thing that the world thinks is really, really cool. So it's an anchor for our souls. In fact, in the craziness of the world, right, how many of you guys are just really grateful that you have an anchor for truth right now, right? As everything else is shifting and changing so fast, your head will just spin, right? And look, I've been on the earth for almost 60 years now. I've never seen a time like this where things are shifting so quickly. But we have this anchor. And man, it's just good to be, just to be anchored down and to say, you know what, let it, all, let it all go. I still love the world in the sense that I want to see people come to know Christ. But you know what? It's, we've been told this is going to happen. Point them to the anchor for your soul. 2 Timothy 3 tells us, because that, that book in your lap or on your phone, because it's God-breathed through the authors of Scripture, that is profitable for everything we need, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And it has a goal, a purpose. 
Paul says that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. His word is truth. The truth contained in God's word is sufficient for faith and godliness. Here's the thing. Whatever's coming down the pike at us, whatever's around the corner, we talk about it a lot, you can know that that, that, that Bible that you have, that, that, that truth is going to sustain you in the midst of it. That is comforting, isn't it? Now, having said that, there's something else you should be aware of. Knowing truth is really, really wonderful, but it's not enough. It's foundational for being sanctified unto service for God, but our knowing has to progress to believing. And our believing then has to pro progress to what? Obedience. Some of us get stuck at the knowing, and then, eh, so much on the believing, and, eh, I'll act on it when I feel like it. Knowing, believing, obeying. So you can't know what you don't read. You can't know what you don't study. And then you can't believe what you don't know, and you'll never obey something you don't believe in. So these three things go together. And if there's any break in that along that chain in your life, don't wonder that your spiritual walk isn't what it should be. That chain is, is very, very important. Can I share with you a brutal fact about human nature that, that, that resides in our flesh? Even as believers, it resides in our flesh. We would all prefer to just believe and act upon our feelings than on the truth of God's word. Whatever, whatever makes sense to us, whatever we sort of are agreeable to. And we have to fight against that impulse because it's in our flesh. We have to fight this continual battle to submit to the truth of God's word because it's not always easy. And I'll give you a practical example of this. I read this, this story this week and it made me chuckle. It's a, it's a bit long, but it really illustrates some, the way we get tripped up on this thing. Here's how it goes. Suppose a friend of yours who has never been on an airplane before asks you for directions on how to travel to another country for vacation. They don't have a clue, so they say, can you write down the steps for me on how to do that? And you're like, sure, I'd, I'd love to help. And so you write down each step, how to go online and research flights and how to order a ticket online, how to get down to the airport, how to print out your boarding pass and check your luggage, how to get in line at the proper time so that you board the plane. And you write this out for them. You give them all the steps in the process. And then a few months later, you bump into your friend and you're like, how'd that vacation go? And they look at you and you say, it didn't work. Your instructions didn't work. You're like, excuse me? What do you mean my instructions didn't work? And here's what they say. Well, I read your instructions, and I did everything that you described, but then when I got to the airport, the person at the desk told me, you missed your flight by three days. So your instructions didn't work. And furrowing your brow, you reply, hold on a second. I wrote down literally, board the plane at the proper time. And your friend says, well, I, I read that, but it didn't seem to be all that important to me at the time. And, and you know what? It didn't really make sense in my way of thinking, so I went to the airport when I felt like it. And now that's kind of silly, isn't it, right? And we, we chuckle. I see some of you chuckling. But sometimes that's the way Christians approach the scriptures. Well, I did read that. It just didn't make sense to me. It just, I didn't think it was all that important, so I just decided to do it my way, right? I'm not alone in this, am I? Are you guys thinking right now or are you mad at me? <laughs> I decided to do life in my way, the way I feel it should go, the way, the way it makes sense to me. 
rather than follow the instructions. So we'll never make any progress in our spiritual life until we come to grips with the fact that Scripture is objective truth. We not only know that, but we believe it and then we act upon it. And here's the warning. Here's the warning. If you're not growing in your knowledge of the Word, if you're not believing that it's true and you're not acting upon it, it is just a matter of time before the enemy in the world start to pick you apart. True? All right. It got really quiet. Um, I'm going I'm to close by coming back to where we started at the beginning. Some practical thoughts about how we as Christians ought to be interacting with the world. What we've heard so far this morning is that as disciples, we do not belong to the world. Right? We're not of the world. And yet at the same time, we're sent into the world with a mission for Christ and the kingdom. So I know a lot of us have used this phrase for many years. And I think it's a good phrase. right? In the world, but not of the world. I'd just like to tweak that a little bit. Not of the world, but sent into the world. I think, I think that actually reflects uh, the, the, the Lord's heart more from this passage. Not of the world, but sent into the world. It, it takes it out of the passive and puts it more into the action taking, right? We're sent into the world. So let me share some principles with you I think are really important. And, and as I do this, I, want to, I just want to point and say I'm grateful to John Piper who has written a lot on this subject and, and really clearly and has influenced my thinking. I'm actually going to borrow some of his terminology, which I'm sure he borrowed from somebody else as the preachers do, right? We pass things along. But Piper often talks about two Christian impulses that are always in tension with each other. And they've got to be held carefully in balance. And he credits a man named Andrew Walls who was a great scholar of missions and he was the first one to use these two terms. You see them on the screen now. The indigenous principle and the pilgrim principle. Indigenous meaning rooted in a particular land. And pilgrim meaning not at home in that land. And that's where we find ourselves. Let me explain that first principle, the indigenous one. In what ways do we as Christians operate as indigenous people in this land, in America? Well, a number of ways. Number one, first of all, we physically live here, right? We know that's true. And at one time, we were all born into this place, right, under the curse of Adam, sons of disobedience like all the rest. So we were indigenous in the sense that we were a part of this collective mass of humanity born into sin. And even after coming to know Christ and trusting in him, we still have to live here physically, right, we're still indigenous because Lord, God is the Lord over the entire earth, including America, right? So in that sense, we're indigenous. We know that the kingdom of God arrived with Jesus, that the king appeared in the flesh. And so in that sense, as his subjects, we can feel somewhat at home because this is the Lord's kingdom too. Only now the Bible tells us as believers, we have to live in a certain way. And it's interesting how Scripture sometimes says, live quiet, peaceful lives, right? Godly and dignified in every way. Love your neighbor, witness to him or her about the goodness of God and his grace in your lives. And when something comes up, for example, Paul uses this one, a Christian is faced with being invited over to an unbeliever's home to eat a meal, right? And let's just say that meat was sold in the marketplace at the same place where Meat sacrificed to idols was sold. This is the example Paul uses. What does he instruct in that situation? You're a believer, you're indigenous to the land, but an unbeliever invites you to dinner. What does Paul say? He says, go ahead and eat. Go ahead and eat. 
without raising questions on the grounds of conscience, he says. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. In other words, you're a child of God and this, this kingdom and, and all of it belongs to God. So eat what you want and don't throw any unnecessary obstacles in the way of building relationship with that family that invited you over. Notice what I said, unnecessary obstacles. Don't throw those in the way of building relationships for the purpose of sharing the gospel. So these are the types of things that support that, that first principle that, yeah, this is our home in some sense, right? The indigenous principle. But then there's the other side, the pilgrim principle. When former sons of disobedience believe and are saved and were transferred, we said this last week, transferred from this kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, that salvation produces in us a new mindset, a pilgrim mindset. Christians begin to look at the beliefs of the world and, and we say, no, that's, that's not true. That's not right. We begin to challenge the beliefs of the world. We challenge the lifestyles of people that live around us. And soon we go, you know what? I don't really belong here. I don't really fit into this world. We become aliens and strangers in, the own, in our own land, the place we were born into. And then we put our voices into the public square and we call out evil and we call out wickedness. And what happens? We get blowback. But wait, I said that in love to try to influence society to make it better, but we get blowback. And so the promise of Christ comes to fruition. You're going to be hated because you stand for truth. We also become aware that the physical world that we live in is groaning under the weight of sin, that it needs to be redeemed. And so we can never really say this is our home because we're looking forward to something much greater, right? This redeemed new heaven and new earth. That's where we want to be. And then as the Holy Spirit works on us, more of this pilgrim principles unleashed in us, we begin to say, you know what? I'm not content with where I'm at spiritually. I can't just make this my home and be comfortable here because I need to grow. I need to mature in Christ. I need to be conform more to his image. And then finally, yeah, the kingdom of God came. It arrived, but only in part. There's so much more to come. It's already, but not yet. So there's more. The fullness of Christ remains to be seen. It's in the future. So in the meantime, we're down here going, Maranatha, please come, Lord, because we don't feel at home here. We long for his return. That is the pilgrim principle. So here's the thing. We have to navigate our way through really choppy waters on this, understanding both of those principles are true and finding a balance in living them out. And it's not easy. So last question then. How do we make choices? How do we make choices? Being not of the world, but sent into the world, being both indigenous and being pilgrims. Well, for this, I'm going to actually go outside of John 17. And I want to put on the screen the passage that Gabe read for us earlier this morning as our call to worship. It comes from 1 Corinthians 9. Let me read this, and then we'll just draw a few conclusions and be done. Here's what Paul writes. He says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. And what wisdom we see in that statement, right? Christ has set you free if you're a believer. But in order to facilitate salvation for my neighbor, I, I gladly, voluntarily make myself a servant to him or her. Make sense? To the Jews, I became a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law. Look at this phrase. Though not being myself under the law. So that I might win those who are under the law. 
to those who are without law, as without law, again, look at this phrase, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. For what purpose? So that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I may win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I, I may by all means save some. Okay, obviously Paul's goal here is very obvious, right? To save people. He wants to see people get saved. That should be our heart as well, to win them to Christ. But he says some things that at first glance look contradictory. Verses 20 and 21, he says, first of all, he's not under law. And that's true. He's in Christ, right? He's not under law. But then in the next verse, he says, he's not without the law. So which is it? Well, he sums it up in verse 21. He says, but I am under the law of Christ, which is what? The law of love. Love God and love your neighbor. And this is what Paul hinted at above in verse 19. It's the law of people who are set free by Christ who then submit gladly to Christ's commands. That's you, by the way. We're not under the law, but because we're free people in Christ, we gladly submit to the commands of Christ. Okay? And we become a servant to our lost neighbors. And you say, well, gosh, this sounds really complicated. Welcome to the world. But this is really hard, Jeff. There's all these competing principles. I know. I know. It's, it is complicated. This is why we need wisdom and discernment to walk through this life. So in freedom, let me just sum this, summarize this. In freedom and for love's sake, what unnecessary differences between you and your neighbor can you eliminate in order to build relationship? In freedom and out of love's sake, are there obstacles that you're throwing in front of people, your neighbors, people that need Christ? What are you throwing there that's inhibiting that, your ability to build relationships? You should look at that. What can you engage in in the world? What common ground can you find with lost people without compromising your testimony? Where's that line? We should look at that. How can you make clear the distinctions between you and your neighbor? This is important too, right? How do I show him that, look, I think differently than you. I, I, my lifestyle is different than you. And here's why. And are you willing to put yourself out there and do that? Are you willing to take that risk, the risk of being, what, made fun of, mocked, persecuted, to put yourself out there? to take hold of the opportunities that God is putting in our ways to share the gospel of grace. So as we intentionally seek to engage in these things, we have to constantly check our hearts and make adjustments to test our lives. Because again, I said earlier, we're walking a tightrope here in these two things. And we can fall off either side. So we have to test ourselves. So out of love for my neighbor and my desire to become all things to all people, the question is, am I starting to become too worldly? If so, I have to make that adjustment, right? I'm becoming too worldly. Have I lost my distinctiveness as a Christian as I try to win people for Christ? Or out of my desire to be distinct from the world and to separate myself, has my heart grown apathetic towards lost people? Do I, am I not caring enough about my neighbor who doesn't know Jesus? Because if I'm only concerned about myself and my holy huddle, then I've fallen off the other side of that tightrope. And I need to make an adjustment. This is hard, isn't it? But if you've never considered it, you should. Because there's a lot of talk about the world and John and how we operate in it. 
considered. I'll close with this word picture. Again, this is not original to me, but it made me laugh, and I think it's great. As Christians, we should be like a great ship. A great ship cannot stay in the dock. It's a waste. So a great ship has to be on mission out there on the ocean, but at the same time, ship shouldn't let the water, the ocean, end up in it. Yeah, that's it. Right? I mean, have you ever seen a massive tanker in the middle of a choppy ocean? Be the ship. Keep the ocean out of it, but be on the water. Don't be in the dock. You've got a purpose and a mission out there in the world. Indigenous and pilgrims. Not conformed, but striving to be all things to all people. Separate from sin, but prepared to participate wherever God's word allows. Living quiet lives, but also ready to call out evil. It's complicated. It's complicated. So here's my advice. Start here. Study God's word. You want principles to live by in this area? You've got to study God's word because it's truth. It's going to lead you in the right direction. Then ask the Lord to grow you in increasing measure in your wisdom, in your discernment. And then lastly, ask people who are older than you, who have more experience in Christian living, who can, who can guide you in these difficult decisions and choices, right? Wise counsel always makes a world of difference. So may the Lord bless whatever work he is doing in your heart right now, all the thoughts, because I just hit you with the fire hydrant, may he bless our time in the word this morning. May he grant us wisdom and insight as we navigate these waters. Father, once again, we thank you that you, you bow low to hear the prayers of your children. Lord, we thank you that your spirit is at work within us. And, and even now this morning, Lord, as I have been praying all morning since I woke up today, Lord, that you would be doing a great work in our hearts and minds, that you would be convicting us in areas that we need conviction, that you would encourage us in areas that we need encouragement, Lord. Whatever our needs are, Lord, we are so grateful that you are a faithful high priest and that you are with us and that you are guiding us and you are helping us navigate the difficulties of this world. And we, Lord, we confess that we want you to return. Yes, we're indigenous. Yes, you are ruling. But Lord, we say Maranatha. Please come, Lord Jesus. We long to be with you in our truest home. So thank you for this morning. Thank you for our baby dedication. Thank you for our time in the word. In all of it, Lord, may you seal these truths to our hearts. And may we grow to be better disciples, more faithful, more committed to your mission on this earth. For your glory, we pray. Amen.